Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. Money is one of the favorite things that I love to talk about, which you can probably tell listening to the show. Today, I had the pleasure to talk to Sam Dogan, author of The Financial Samurai, one of the most widely read financial independence blogs on the internet. We go into all things money on this show and talk about his book, Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom. If money's as important to you as it is to me, this is a show that you are not going to want to miss. Good morning, Sam. I am a longtime reader, first-time talker. For those listeners who haven't been following your journey on Financial Samurai, can you give our listeners a brief overview of your story, path, and what brings us to a conversation on your book, By This, Not That, today. Uh, Good morning. I I started Financial Samurai in July 2009, right during the bottom of the global financial crisis. And we could be heading back there, but maybe, maybe not. I started the site because I wanted to figure out something else to do after 13 years. Well, at that time, 10 years in finance. I was kind of getting bored. I was worried about getting laid off. And it just wasn't, finance industry just wasn't in my heart anymore. So I wanted to do something else. And I wanted to connect with other people who were also going through difficult financial times. And now over 13 years later, I'm still doing it. And what you write about on Financial Samurai is financial literacy and financial freedom. The challenge being financial freedom means something different to all of us. Can you share what your definition is and why you think This is such an important concept for every listener. Well, I think financial freedom means generating enough passive income or semi-passive income to cover your basic living expenses. Everybody has different levels of living expenses, but, you know, once you got your basics covered, food, clothing, shelter, education for your children, if you have any, take care of your parents, if you have any, you're good to go. You can then take risks to do more things, to do what you want, and essentially, You know, we all have a certain level of time here on this earth. We don't know how long. And one of the reasons why I wanted to achieve financial independence sooner rather than later was so that just in case uh, something were to happen to me, I would be able to hedge, get out and live the life that I want. So I wouldn't have to live and look back with regret. Love it. And there were a couple terms in there we'll dive right into and educate the listeners so the rest of the conversation makes sense to them. You talked about passive income. For the listeners who don't know what that is, what is passive income and what are some of your favorite two or three ways to generate passive income? Oh, passive income is just income you can make without having to do any work. Wouldn't that be nice, right? I think the best split is between about 70% passive, 30% active. Because you always want to do something purposeful that generates money because it feels rewarding. It feels meaningful. But the passive income... Examples include investing in dividend stocks, 
investing in rental properties, anything from bonds, municipal bonds, CDs, anything that generates income passively. And the way I look at it is there's different levels of passive income. Some of the stuff like owning physical rental properties is semi-passive because something will always break. There will always be tenant issues, turnover, but you could generate more income than, let's say, buying an S&P 500 index, which only generates, let's say, a 1.8% yield, whereas your rental property yield could be like 7 8 10%. And so when it comes to real estate, have a bit of a different take than what a lot of investors write about with real estate. You're very big on the heartland of America. Can you share some of your thoughts on why that may be the area of real estate that appreciates more than the traditional, let's call it coastal or or blue states that have traditionally been the high appreciation real estate cities? Well, the thesis, I wrote about it in 2016. And the idea is that thanks to technology, more people will disperse across the country, find lower cost areas to live. And then the coastal cities will see a slow uh, dispersion of those people. And it was going well. And then the pandemic hit, right, in 2020. And there was a huge acceleration of dispersion into the heartland, the Sun Belt, lower cost areas. Because why does San Francisco, New York City, Boston, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles need to have a monopoly on technology, finance, and media, right? And so the pandemic has really accelerated that. And I think that's going to continue because it's already putting the genie back in the bottle. Working from home is here to stay forever, at least in a hybrid form. And I think people are going to just gradually want to arbitrage the opportunity to save money, live in a less crowded area, and then slowly build more friends in these new areas, start families. It's going to be a multi-generational thing. And that's why I think I want to invest in that. This is probably like a 30-decade trend of investing in Heartland real estate. Because I think a lot of times we investors look at the minutiae too much. You know, when should we buy this, buy, sell that, this stock, that stock. But I think you got to instead invest in trends. Focus on big, sweeping long-term trends. Just get on that bus and then the direction will be good. Then you're going to be good as well. You're talking a bit there about you're diving into the analysis paralysis that we tend to have as investors. And you have a general rule of thumb that tells us when we should act on a decision without having all the information. Can you talk a bit about that, Sam? And how much of the information do you have to have before you pull the trigger? I have a 70-30 decision-making framework. You can say it's a philosophy where if you believe there's a 70% chance or greater that the decision you're going to make is the right one, go for it. Go for it with 100% conviction while having the humility and understanding, knowing that maybe 30% of the time you're going to get it wrong. But so long as you don't die, so long as it's not catastrophic, you're going to learn from your mistakes and get better. So I use the 70-30 philosophy, everything from investing to whether to get married to starting a new job to going to school. If you think about life, there's no 100% certainties for anything. But if you wait for 100% certainty to make a decision, a lot of things are going to pass you by. And then you're going to look back with regret. And regret is something that I really, really don't like. So you work from a regret minimization method. Do you do any visualizations to say, here's Sam at 70, for example, writing a letter back to me, telling me, 
what he regrets? Or do you have any other exercises that you do to minimize the regrets that you may have in life down the road? Oh, yeah. As a writer, you know, I write three posts a week on Financial Samurai. It's been every week since July 2009 without fail. And it really makes me think about past, present, future subjects every single week. And I make sure to be very intentional with what I'm writing about because if I miss something, because life is busy, life is crazy, I don't want to a year from now do my year in review article, right? And say, oh man, I didn't do that. I didn't check off what I wanted to do and then I'd regret it. So yeah, regret is, it's such an interesting fuel for me because I know that there's like self-inflicted regret in the sense that you just didn't study hard or you didn't, you know, look around the corner before getting eaten by bear, you know, things like that. You could have done things to protect yourself. And then there are like exogenous regrets where you just can't help the variables, but you can pre-mortem plan where if something bad happens, there's like three steps you can take to try to ameliorate the situation. And so if you're writing three times a week and you're doing a year in review, it, it gives you the benefit that you can't simply be a pontificator. This is what I think is going to happen with the market. I think real estate in the heartland is where the prices are going to go up. I think this, this, and this. And then in the year in review, what did I do for my investments? Oh, I didn't do any of the things I told you I thought would happen. And I regret that they actually did happen over the course of three to five years. So it's such a great tool, actually, in hindsight, to push yourself to do the things that you write about, that you talk about, that you say, which is one of the reasons I look forward to getting to a newsletter. And when you talked about having a decision-making framework that presses go on decisions when you have 70% likelihood of success. One of the things that you talk about is using probabilistic thinking in order to get you there. And if I look at most of life, when you have a conversation with someone and you're asking a question at work with, hey, what happens in these situations? You almost always get an answer like, it depends. You rarely get an answer that says, well, on average, this is the outcome that you can expect, which tends to be how I work in life. I like to work on averages. I don't know if I've gone as far as probabilistic on those averages of just say, on average, what is the situation? For our listeners, what is probabilistic thinking and how can we change our ability to think in probabilities so that we can improve our decision-making frameworks? Tough question, no easy answer, but step one is to understand your baseline. What is the historical average? For example, let's say the stock market, S&P 500, the historical average we know is about 10% annual returns, dividends reinvested. So if that's the average, or oh, since, you know, for 90 plus years, we know that's the baseline. And then once you know the baseline, then you can start thinking about probabilities with returns above and below the return averages based on the various variables we see at hand. For example, early 2020-22, we saw valuations at top 5% levels, right? And so we say, well, maybe the probability of beating a 10% return this year is probably going to be below 50% because the valuations are so high and the Fed is hiking rates and you don't want to fight the Fed, right? So there are no, you don't have a certainty on your probability of let's say 70% or you believe 80%. But what happens is that you train your mind to get close to a realistic probability percentage, to get congruent with your thinking and your actions. And you do this by actually taking action, making bets, 
where when you win, you get the reward. And when you lose, you feel the pain, but you figure out what you did wrong. So it's a constant awareness. It's a constant congruency of thinking and action that you have to undertake. Because one of the dangerous things about investing or going through life is uh, this thing called Dunning-Kruger effect, where you believe you're something when you're really not. It's a funny thing where you believe you're better than you really are. And so you have to really get aligned to who you really are to be able to live better life, make more money, have more friends, build your business, have a more fulfilling life in general. The Dunning-Kruger effect is one of my favorites. And I think there's also the stat that roughly 80 to 90% of drivers think they're better than the average driver. So when you start to think about that in life, it applies to everything. And when you talk about the bets, do you do that in all areas of your life? For example, with my finance team, different interest rates here than in the US. But for example, we'll do regularly, hey, let's have a bet on where we think the Fed rate's going to be in two years. All the time. It's called prop betting. So we bet on everything. Uh, when I worked in finance, we bet on Tiger Woods or the field in the Masters, right? For example. So you take everybody else or Tiger Woods. We bet on whether our intern can eat $25 worth of Taco Bell within one hour and not puke, right? Like that was like a prop bet like 20 years ago. These are prop bets that we make all the time. Like who's going to win the dog show? How many humpback whales will you see during your excursion to see those whales? Uh, how long will your friends be, you know, married or have that girlfriend? Who will win that game, you know, that basketball game? So if you think in these kind of bets, you make these bets and you will see an outcome right? And then once you see that outcome, you've got to be very careful. Did you win that bet because of the reasons you outlined because you believed or was it because of some totally different reason? Now, if you confuse those reasons, it's very dangerous because then you might make bigger bets on similar types of bets in the future and you might get them wrong because of the wrong reasons. And so it's a constant self-awareness of who you are, how you think, and the actions you take. And the great thing about finance, it's pretty meritocratic, right? Basically, anybody with a laptop and $100 can now invest. And so you will see over time, did you make the right decision or the wrong decision? And that's one of the reasons why I like finance so much. I mean, almost anybody can invest. And so I'm going to go back to your very early in the beginning, because we were talking about financial freedom, and you mentioned the concept of financial independence. So taking it a level deeper. And what I'm talking about there is the FIRE movement, which is a concept tied to financial freedom. And I've got a three-part question for you on this one, Sam, which drives a lot of the reason we're here today in the conversation we're having. For those listeners who don't know, what is FIRE? How do we know when we've achieved it? And can you differentiate between the different types of FIRES? We have lean FIRE, fat FIRE, and barista FIRE as an example. So FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. You know your FIRE when your passive investment income covers your basic living expenses. Fat FIRE is a more, I would say, luxurious way to retire early. Lean FIRE is a more lean and frugal way to retire early. Barista FIRE is a FIRE where you are not quite there yet. So you're taking on like a barista type lower paying job, but has healthcare benefits because in the United States, healthcare is very expensive. And then there's another term called Coast FIRE, which I just wrote about recently. And it's about coasting your way to traditional retirement because you've invested enough at your age where the value of your investments will compound to a sustainable amount 
once you retire at 60, which to me just sounds like you're a regular working individual who's just investing and saving for the future. Now, I don't know if you've heard recently, some people are throwing around this one called Hellfire, which is you've hit your target that's so high that you've gone beyond fat fire. You can do whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, and you're going to be in good shape. So maybe a nice target to shoot for. When you were talking earlier and you talked about having that purpose, having that meaning and having that 30% active income versus 70% passive income. And I look at what you're doing with Financial Samurai and you've written about selling versus not selling, why you want to keep it, having an asset for your family, for your children. So you're pursuing a purpose there. And when I look at my long-term path, very similar. Retire from the day job, from working for other people, but have all of my other things that I'm doing and passive income behind the scenes helping if I need it. That doesn't necessarily, to me, tie into the fire piece. And that's what I've always wondered. I've always called it a pivot. How do you define what you did? Because I don't think you'd think that you fit in one of those fires either. Because as you say in the book, when you look at what you're doing with writing the book with Financial Samurai, that's a pretty hefty hobby, if you will, with a lot of remuneration. So how, how do you view that, Sam? Yeah, so I don't think the end goal is to retire and do nothing. It's to retire and do something else that you enjoy that doesn't give you much pressure, but gives you a lot of joy and purpose. And so when I retired from finance after 13 years in 2012, I was 34 years old. I was burned out. I didn't want to do it anymore. I walked away from six-figure income and I wanted to just travel and see the world and write on a deck on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean. And actually, that's exactly what we did. And we saw like 20 countries. And it was great. But after a while, it just get a little bit boring. There's only so many churches you can see, so many tennis matches you can play. And so I wanted a little bit more purpose. And so in 2015, I encouraged my wife, who was three years younger than me, she also retired early, to negotiate a severance. I said, after three years, when you're 35, because I left when I was almost 35, if things are okay, then just join me. Join me on this adventure because life's too short to just keep on grinding at some job you didn't like. And she didn't like her job either. And so she left and it was us two as a team where we could do whatever we want. But after a year of doing whatever we want, we decided, you know what? Let's focus more on Financial Samurai because it's helping people with their personal finances. It's giving them the courage to do what they want. It's giving them some insights into real life things that we experience all the time because we write from firsthand experience. We're not hiring freelance writers to write SEO optimized articles. We're just writing about life. And uh, let's just focus on that and see where it goes. And so for me, Financial Samurai is a great purpose for me because it's read by about a million readers a month organically. Uh, we don't do much marketing or anything. And there's all these people who email and reach out and ask for help. And it's really rewarding to help these people. And also, when our kid, our first son, was born in 2017, we said, well, we actually have more of a purpose now to be grounded and to share our stories, podcasts, writing, so that one day he might grow up and learn from us. And we also have a purpose of using this platform to teach him about small business, marketing, PR, finances, investing, because what a wonderful educational opportunity to use a small business to teach your children growing up. And so all these things, you know, it's interesting, life evolves 
tremendously after you retire. Maybe it's like life starts after you retire because you actually start really wanting to do what you want to do. And Sam, does your wife then play a role with you in Financial Samurai on the team? Yeah. So she edits probably 30% of my posts. Uh, My father edits 70% of my posts. Uh, It's a great way for me to connect with my father on a weekly basis. Uh, He's 74 years old and we talk constantly. He always needle me on some grammatical error and typos uh, nonstop. And I think that gives him joy. And so I let him do that. So he's happy (laughs) criticizing me, which is fine. Uh, That's what parents do. And talk about the book. You know, we work on collaborating on book idea for buy this, not that. And so it's just like a wonderful thing for us to do because he's retired as well. So even though he gets annoyed at some of my writing style and he wants to put in his way of writing, it gives him something to do. And I think that helps him wake up every single morning, oftentimes, and have a purpose. And I think what you're going to love about being a father is you get to have prop bets with your children. And as an example, when I'm going at everything in a bit of a reverse order to you, or maybe in a similar order in that I'm building out social media following to drive the podcast, which will drive the newsletter. And so we'll have family bets about, hey, where's the social media following going to be in six months? And it's fun when your children consistently prop bet you low. But then you have a shift and you talked about this is because you're showing them a path. And I I was talking to my oldest son. He's 14 now, Sam. And I said, this was only two or three days ago. I said, hey, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? Like you got to start planning your future, work backwards so that you can get there. And we talk about that all the time. And I was pushing him a little. Actually, it was yesterday now that I think about it. And he threw out, well, maybe I'll do what you do, dad with online writing and creation. And I thought, wow, like I'd never thought only a year into this that because I started last August, roughly, that he would see that as an avenue for him to take. So when you talk about that and laying that foundation for your children, they're going to grow up seeing that their whole life. And so they'll see that they have a path other than the traditional path that we're all taught. So I think you're absolutely going to love that journey. Now, I'm going to flip a little bone to pick on this next one because it's very hard to do as a Canadian. And so when we look at the traditional way we look at fire and a lot of people will say, well, 4% rule, you just need 25x your expenses. You tweak that one on me and say, hey, you should aim for a percentage of your gross income. The challenge being here. For every dollar I earn now, I pay 53% of it in tax. So when I try to base anything off of my gross income, it becomes absolutely (laughs) insanely challenging. And I look at that number and I get the number you had and my heart starts to beat fast. And I say, holy cow, I thought I was going to be ready at 47. I'm not going to be ready till 62. So why gross income? And does it change if someone's in a high tax jurisdiction versus, versus a low tax? The tax thing doesn't change. Uh, it just makes it harder or easier. So the idea of having a target of 20 times your a net worth target of 20 times your average gross income to achieve financial independence, ultimately, is because it is an offensive way to generate wealth. Most of us will generate more money over time 
And when you generate more money over time, using a multiple of income, gross income, forces you to continue to save at a certain saving rate and invest, no matter how much you make. Because we all know people who make millions of dollars who end up broke or wonder where all their money went 10 years ago or 10 years later, actually. In terms of saving 25-year expenses, yeah, it's the inverse of the 4% rule, which is outdated for sure since it was invented in the 1990s. Uh, times have changed, obviously. And if you do expenses, basically you can cheat your way to financial independence. Let's say you're making, you know, you can live off $40,000 a year. So you're like, okay, if I get to a million dollars, I'm financially independent. But let's say you don't want to work out one day, you know, like you don't want to go to the gym, you don't want to save, you don't want to invest, you don't want to build your side hustle. You're like, I'm going to cut my expenses to $20,000. And then, oh, I only need, you know, whatever it is, $500,000 now. And now I'm financially independent. That's cheating. You just slash your expenses to the bare bones and you say, wow, I'm good. And then when you do that, you might cheat yourself ultimately. Now, maybe you're really happy living on bare bones, but when you use a target multiple based off your gross income, you just can't cheat. You can't cheat your way to financial independence. When you're making more, you're forced to save and invest more. When you're making less, okay, yeah, it's just a percentage, right? So that is the different mindset that I have versus literally... I would say 99% of the personal finance community talking about this. And the irony is also a lot of people who write about retirement or just giving it up are not retired, right? You have PhD retirement researchers talking about what you need in retirement. What I'm telling people is, uh, man, what you think you need is different from what you actually need because it's very different to just press the escape hatch and you know, walk away from a nice pension, a steady paycheck. Well, how you feel in retirement will be very different from how you think you'll feel. And when you look at most of the financial independence community, it seems to me that they tend to focus on the lean fire and the cut, cut, cut more than they do on the fat fire and earn and invest. Is that your perception or am I misconstruing what I see? Well, I think that's true. And one of the reasons why, and, and I was wondering why that was. It's true. And I was wondering why this was as I was writing by this, not that. It's very hard to write intelligently, entertainingly about personal finance, right? If you want to write about investing and building a business, you have to be an experienced investor and an experienced entrepreneur. You just can't wing it. Otherwise, people will not <laughs> find you credible at all. However, it's very easy to talk about saving and budgeting. Anybody can talk about saving and budgeting. And most people aren't, they don't come from finance backgrounds or they didn't get their MBA. It's interesting that way, right? And so you write what you know and you write what you know with a lot of uh, hopefully heart and experience. And so if most people don't come from a finance background, they're going to gradually talk about the saving and budgeting portion of it, right? And so that was my challenge to write something that talked more about income generation, entrepreneurship, and the offensive part of building wealth. But it's also very difficult because since most people don't do that, it's harder to digest, right? You might be lost one day. So it's a real tough balance as a writer, a personal finance writer, to tell stories that make sense to help with the investment reasoning and the entrepreneurship reasoning. Okay. And so the other thing we talked about there, I mean, we talked about using a certain percentage of your income. We talked about the 4% rule. For the listeners who don't know why we're talking about those two things, what are we looking at, you and I, when we're saying, how much assets do I need to drive a certain amount of income? 
what's the purpose of that formula and how can the person at home backwards do the math so they know what they're looking at? So the purpose of the formula is to figure out how much capital you need so you can retire and not have to worry too much about money that'll last you for the rest of your life. And do you include principal residents, not principal residents, liquid assets, not liquid? What's your preference for the person at home when they're doing this calculation and they're looking at their net worth statement and listener, please tell Sam and I, you at least know your net worth and you know what your assets are, your liabilities, and you have some spreadsheets and trackers. Yeah. So net worth, yeah, you can include your primary residence if you want. You should because you can borrow from it. You can sell it to get extract the equity. So ideally you have capital that generates income because you can say 4% is a withdrawal rate or a return. So if you have a million dollars, 4% $40,000, can you live off $40,000 or not? So the way you want to do it is you calculate your true budget, like a baseline budget and a realistic budget over the past three months. You annualize it to get your annual figure and you divide it by a rate of return. Could be 3%, 4%, 5%. I wouldn't divide it by more than 5 or 6% because that gets too aggressive. You don't want to be too aggressive in your assumptions in retirement because if you lose money, you're just older, right? You have less health, less energy. You don't want to go back to work. So you want to be relatively conservative. You want to divide your annual expenses by about 3 to 5%. So if your expenses, let's say, is $50,000, take $50,000 divided by, let's say, zero. This is more aggressive, 0.05, right? 5%. And so it's like, okay, you need... Ooh, $1 million, right? So the idea is how much capital do you need to generate so you never have to work again? And it's pretty basic. But again, I turn it around and try to encourage people to shoot for multiple of income. So if you make $100,000, try to shoot. And it's in the book, but there's multiples by age you want to get to. You know, 3x your gross income by age 30. Let's say 10x by age 40. But if you don't get there, it's okay. Like if you're like, you suddenly read the book and you're 40, you're like, I'm not there. That's fine. What you want to do is use it as motivation because just like a personal trainer, you know, he or she could be extremely ripped, makes you try to get the most out of you so that you'll be better versus if you had not taken that personal trainer. Exactly. So earlier you talked about the fact that you think one of the reasons we should go to a multiple of our income is because the safe withdrawal rate is outdated. And you suggest a financial samurai safe withdrawal rate. Why the modification? And what should we be thinking about, especially now as we're having such large movements or swings, if you will? Because I think if we both did a prop that we would suggest two years from now, we think rates will be lower than they are today. Now, how does all that impact safe withdrawal rate for our listeners? So the safe withdrawal rate is the... 10-year bond yield. Well, I use the U.S. bond yield. It could be a Canadian bond yield. Whatever yield that is sovereign that won't default, right? And so here in the United States, the 10-year bond yield is about 4.2%. So you can invest all your money and earn a 4.2% risk-free return for them every year for 10 years. And so every risk asset is based off the risk-free rate of return. You would not invest in any other risk asset if you didn't believe it would generate a premium over the 10-year bond yield or the risk-free rate of return. Why bother taking risk if you can earn risk-free rate at 4.2%? Why bother investing in stocks, real estate, whatnot? And so what I've discovered is the irony of a bear market as the Fed hikes rates aggressively is that it's easier to generate more passive income in this bear market. 
because rates are going up, right? We, it's easier to generate more income from treasury bonds. It's easier to generate more income from dividend yielding stocks because corporations have to pay a higher dividend payout to stay competitive with the government bond yields. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to attract any capital. And so, you know, this 4% rule, the risk-free rate, they're all intertwined. And so you have to discover what your risk tolerance is, your true risk tolerance, and then invest accordingly. And the way I've encouraged people to think about the risk tolerance is to think about how much of their time they're willing to sacrifice to make up for potential losses in their portfolio. The more time you're willing to sacrifice to make up for losses, the higher your risk tolerance. For me, at 45 years old with two young kids in their formidable years, I guess, you would say, I have very low risk tolerance. I don't want to risk much of anything. I'm not willing to spend more than six months of my life trying to make back my losses. So I think I'm a moderate to conservative investor. But maybe you're like 25 years old and you're like, I got my whole future and career. I'm willing to work 30 more years. You might be willing to sacrifice three years of your life to make up your potential losses. And so you have a high risk tolerance. Okay. And so I'm going to pivot in a different direction and throw a quote at you from the book, and then I'd love your feedback on it. The quote is, given everything in life is a gamble, how quickly you achieve financial independence depends on how much work you put in, how much you save, and how much risk you take. Can you talk a bit about the importance of all three components there, Sam, for our listeners who may, as we talked about with financial independence, they may only be focusing on how much they save, not on the other two. Well, yeah, the more risk you take, the more potential reward and the more potential losses. And what I've found is that we don't take as many risks as we probably should in our 20s and maybe 30s. And as a result, we tend to leave very average lifestyles. And that's just normal. If you take average risk, you'll probably receive average reward. All the wealthiest people in the world are entrepreneurs because they took a lot of risk. They probably had a lot of help and they had a lot of luck. And so that luck component is actually the untalked about component we should probably mention because you want to put yourself in the right place. You want to have good work ethic. You know, I'm talking to you at 6.30 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, and then I'm going to write and then I'm going to take my kids to school. So be consistent with that work ethic. Invest accordingly based on your risk tolerance. And that's the beauty of Buy This, Not That. The book is that it gives you a framework for how much risk you should take by age because it's very important because, you know, once that time goes, those opportunities will pass you by. And then that luck component, because if you recognize, if you are able to generate outsized luck, and maybe it's because you're lucky enough to listen to this podcast or read a book that helps propel you forward, you should cherish that luck and try to keep it as long as possible. Uh, For me, I've tried to look at how the lucky things in my life has transpired and try to translate that luck into real assets that will hopefully last for longer than my luck will last. And so that is, let's say, funny money gains in the stock market or cryptocurrency or whatever, like these funny money things that just, you know, you don't really deserve those rewards. You were just lucky to invest in them. And then you sell them and you translate it into a real asset like property, like art, something that's going to last. That's always been my philosophy. Because I've always felt I've been very, very lucky. And so I want to create something that will last for much longer. And when you look at that conversion, is there a certain amount of your assets that you say, hey, I'm going to put it in funny money. I'm going to put it in some moonshots. And if I'm successful, then I'm going to take it out. 
bring it back down to that percentage that I originally had for my allocation. And I'm going to put that into long-term assets that generate me passive income. I'm always investing about 10% in riskier assets, 10% of my investments, riskier assets, like anything speculative, because there's always a unicorn out there. There's always opportunities. And if I lose all my money in the 10%, it's okay. I still have 90%. I'll be fine. But if I make 10 bagger or more, it, it makes a difference. There's always some opportunity out there. You just have to look. And I'm going to take you in another direction, another quote from the book, because this one I think is something we need to spend a fair amount of time on with our listeners, because it's probably the biggest thing that stops people from reaching financial independence. And that is, people don't want to hear this, but the truth is most of us get into debt because we want to live a lifestyle we don't yet deserve. So you and I are going to anger some people with a conversation on that, but I think it is very needed because what we're seeing a lot of today, and I think this has only gotten worse in, I always refer to it as the Kardashian era, not because I have anything against the Kardashians. They've done an absolutely phenomenal job at what they've done. The problem is it's created this world where we all compare our lifestyle to their lifestyle and think, well, I need to buy X or I need to buy Y or I need to buy Z instead of saying, hey, I'm in a way better spot than I was at any point in my life. I don't actually need anything. And so what does that look like for you and why that line? And what do you talk to people about in that way? Well, debt is something that's interesting. There's good debt and there's bad debt. Good debt is generally debt where you can buy an asset that historically appreciates over time, right? So you can think about real estate. Generally good debt if you don't go overboard. I have a 30-33 home buying rule, for example, in the book that I share about how much real estate you should buy. Bad debt is consumer debt, revolving consumer debt, credit card debt. The average credit card interest rate here in the United States is about 18% now. That return is greater than the average compound return of the wealthiest investor in the world, Warren Buffett. So why would you try to borrow at an average 18% or maybe even higher rate of return to buy something you don't need to enrich a credit card company that returns greater than a, someone worth like, you know, $100 billion. So getting right with debt is about getting right with what you think you deserve. And so I have always believed that if I am a C student, I deserve a C lifestyle. I didn't put in the work to get a B or an A to deserve that lifestyle. So until I can put in that work, until I can save and invest and learn, I'm not going to live that lifestyle. It's about congruency. So again, if you're incongruent with the way you spend money, the amount of money you earn, then it's going to lead to financial ruin. And so what I want to encourage people to do is to not get into consumer debt because you're making someone else rich to be debt-free or to invest wisely to get yourself rich and be congruent with the way you act and think. So until we can afford to buy something, don't buy it. So for example, big screen TV. Well, do you need it? Can you pay in cash? Can you pay off the credit card if you're going to put it on it? Is that the type of thinking that you use in your everyday life that you think our listeners and your readers should be following? Absolutely don't buy anything with revolving credit card debt. That's the clearest message I can give here. Well, let me give you an example, a car. Here, at least in the United States, a lot of people love cars. And I think, therefore, cars are probably one of the biggest drags on building wealth for most Americans. The average car price is like 48000 U.S. dollars now. That is 
crazy because the median household income is about 75,000 households. So two people, sometimes one person, sometimes. So after tax, the average or median American is spending like 80% of their after tax household income on a new car. And so I have a one-tenth rule for car buying, which states that don't spend more than 10% of your annual gross income on the cost of a car. So if you make $100,000, limit your purchase price of a car to $10,000. If you want to buy a $70,000 luxury automobile, go ahead and make $700,000. Go for it. And then people will get mad and say, I'm not going to make $700,000. And I say, well, don't buy a $70,000 car then. So it's a way of motivating you to make more money, to tether your desires, your unnecessary desires. If you want that unnecessary thing, go make more money. And if you always tether that offensive mindset to what you want to buy that you don't need, you're going to be all right. It's the people who say, I want to buy the $70,000 fancy automobile who makes $50,000, maybe even only $100,000, maybe even only $200,000, who are going to get in trouble because they're going to have to take on debt or they're going to have to sell some assets to buy something that's going to depreciate in value. So really be congruent, be logical with your spending, only buy things you deserve and you deserve things based on the amount of money and the work ethic you put in. So much to talk about on that one. And Sam, with your children, when they're in school, you're going to start to have this conversation, which you may already have because of Financial Samurai, but they'll talk about friends in their class and they'll say, oh, little Timmy is so rich because he has this phone and his dad drives this car. And then you start to have the conversations of, well, you don't actually know if Timmy's rich. His parents may just be stressed out before they go to bed because they have so much debt to afford a lifestyle that looks like they're rich. And that's your 50,000 salary, 70,000 car example. Something you mentioned twice in that one was this concept of income tethering which I thought was an interesting way to gamify how we're saving to tie it to what we're spending. Can you educate the listeners on what you mean by income tethering and what we're looking to do with little examples on our spend throughout our saving journey? Yeah. So the ultimate goal, if you want to achieve financial freedom, is to generate passive investment income. So the idea is whatever thing you want, or whatever thing you need to spend on. Tether it to an investment goal so that you're always motivated to save and invest. For example, let's say something simple like fancy date nights for $100 with your wife or your husband or whoever, four times a week. So that's $400 a month, that's $4,800 a year in fancy date night dinners, right? Seems kind of reasonable. That'd be pretty good. So how much capital do you need to generate $4,800 to pay for your fancy date nights every single year at a 4% rate of return? So you take $4,800 divided by 4%, 0 0.0, and you get $120,000 in capital. So if you want to maintain that lifestyle, try to figure out a way to save and invest $120,000. It doesn't have to generate 4% rate of return. But that's the capital that could generate 4% rate or more. So whatever thing you do, think about tethering that to your investments. And it's tethering it like same with the one-tenth rule for car buying. You want to buy $80,000 car, go make $800,000. If you're okay with a $10,000 car, $100,000 is good. You're okay with a $5,000 car, $50,000 pretty good for you. Tether it so that it always pushes you to earn 
and invest. So you stay honest and you stay ahead of your consumption game. Even as you're talking about some of these rules, it starts to tie into this whole concept that you always hear of the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And part of that being, let's say you're making $500,000 a year and someone's making 50 and you both buy the same $50,000 car. That person who's making $500,000, they have met your 10% rule. And so that car doesn't have a diminishing effect on their ability to save, invest, earn. Whereas that person who's making 50000 that car payment now is going to deteriorate their ability to save, invest, and earn. And is that what drives most of our rules is to say, hey, before you make this decision, because if your goal is financial independence, we've got to rein in the spend and invest aggressively. So here's the things you need to be thinking about. Here's some ground rules for each of these areas that you need to target. Absolutely. And I just want to say that if you don't want to achieve financial independence by a certain age, that's all good too. You can spend your way to do whatever you want. That's the great thing about living in a free country. But, you know, in five, 10 years, let's say you hate your job and you find yourself very miserable and you don't have as much money to provide you options, you have to be okay with that. You got to be okay to say, well, over 10 years, I had a great amount of time. I drove a fancy car, I went out, I traveled the world, and that's a lot of value. And as a result, I don't have as much money now, but you got to be okay with that. And so long as you're okay with not having that money that you could have had, then everything is good. It goes back to congruency. Be congruent with what you want and how you act. And then no matter what you do, I think it's going to be pretty fine. And I always refer to that, Sam, as reconciling what you want with what you're willing to do with simple example being people who tell you they want to get promoted, they want a bigger title, they want more money, and they want greater work-life balance. So you you start to say, well, wait a second. You want all these things, but you don't want to work any harder than you're already working. And so let's jump there for a second. You're talking to someone in their 20s and they say, hey, eventually I want to be where you are, Sam. What are some of the things you're telling them about their careers to get ahead to be a high earner, to be able to have the optionality to press pause or stop or pivot when they're in their 30s or they're in their early 40s? Yeah. Follow a framework, an investing framework by age. It's about percentages. It's about consistency, diligently saving and investing as much as you can by age, following these targets that I have in Buy This, Not That. Uh, I wrote the book, if, if any, the sooner you can read Buy This, Not That, the better you will be financially because you're going to take action to help with your finances. There's so much amazing literature, audio, video, things that you can do to help yourself. Because one of the key ways to say, if I knew then what I know now, things would be different is to just listen to the people who are where you want to be or who've been through what you will probably go through. And so there's really no reason. Ah, There's reasons, but There's so much opportunity for you to enrich your mind with these actions. Some key tenets include if the amount of money you're saving each month doesn't hurt, you're not saving enough. So the idea is don't wing it because if you wing it with your finances, you're going to wake up five, 10 years from now regretting winging it because you'll wonder where your money went. It just kind of, it's like a leaky pipe. If you're not intentional, it'll just leak away and you'll wonder. So that's one of my key tenets. And the other one is if the direction is correct, Sooner or later, you'll get there. So you have the right principles, the right knowledge, the right understanding. Man, if you follow those principles, you're going to get there sooner or later. You might not retire by 50 or 40, but whatever. But sooner or later, you're going to get there. 
And what about for their career, Sam? What are some ways that you suggest when you're sitting down with someone and they're just getting out of college? What are top two or three things you tell them to focus on career-wise to get to that high earner status? Well, you've obviously got to do your research and be in the right field. But right fields aren't all of it, right? Right fields to make more money. If you want to make more money, you want to be in industries that pay you the most money. Those are banking, consulting, tech, doctor, you know, big law, right? But once you get in there, you have to basically realize you're a cost center in the beginning. So if you're a cost center, that means you're going to try to have to minimize how much you cost to them. And you got to add value and you got to learn. So if you're not coming in first, you're not leaving last, you're not respecting your opportunity. Pay your dues. Ask what you can do for others. Make your senior colleagues look fantastic. Because as your network becomes more senior and grows, they will pull you up with them. They really will. It's interesting because I'm 45 now and my friends who are in their 20s are now running firms or they're in very senior levels, right? And it's amazing when they tell you, oh, your network, your network, your network, your net worth, or it's very important. You don't really care about that in your 20s. You're just like, let's just get it done. But now it's kind of almost like an unfair advantage at 45 years old where most of my friends are in positions of power because they're 20 plus years experience. And so that network can help make life easier to get deals done. Say, hey, can I get a recommendation for this school or fundraising or whatever? Get on this podcast or show. So the other thing is don't neglect your network. Learn how to develop a good personality and build true relationships. Yeah, I have to echo that one. I often talk to people about the power of your network. And when you're in your 20s, you don't think about it. But the friends you make, if you start in investment banking like you did or or hear from me at a big four accounting firm, and you say, oh, well, these are the friends I'm going to make at this age. 25 years later, you look around your city and you say, oh, like all the major finance positions are filled by people that... I went to school with or that I articled with and how have they gotten to where they've gotten. But the ability to help you get a job, to help you push your career forward is massive. It can't be, be understated. So when you're talking to someone then, when a couple of the things that are hotly debated, should they pursue their passion or follow the money? And the second one, join a tech startup or an established company. Where do you fall on these debates? I think you got to follow the opportunity. Follow the opportunity. Go where the opportunity takes you to the coldest part of Canada uh, during the middle of winter. You should go for that opportunity. Don't think about... And so opportunity, that means I would say 70, 80% of that is the money and your ability to have a greater career. And then 20, 30% is your passions. You can follow your passions uh, on the side, on the weekends from... 7 p.m. to midnight if you want. But the opportunity, again, you're a cost center in your 20s and maybe your 30s. So it's like, go where the opportunity is greatest. Your second question on tech or established, I think that uh, you want to go for the opportunity that it's very hard. Joining a startup, I would say 95% plus startups you join will not make you rich. In fact, they'll make you poor. Uh, literally poor, like because you're going to get underpaid on your salary and your stock options aren't going to be worth anything. So the thing you got to think about with joining a startup is how much are you learning? If you're learning a lot, you're taking a lot of responsibility, that is actually fantastic value. 
And so if you have that, then you can translate that into better opportunities in the future. But for the first five, six years, I think join as reputable firm as possible. Get your experience down. Because if you join a startup when you're 24, 25, even if you get that equity and it becomes a home run, it's not going to be that much. But if you join a successful startup when you're 30, 35 or older, you're going to get significant equity, even more experience. And if it does well, that's going to be life-changing money. Well said. So I'm going to rewind on you because we talked about one area, but we didn't necessarily talk about both aspects of it. A question you and I probably both get a lot is, hey, I've got a bunch of debt, but should I be investing? What do you usually throw at people on that one? Yeah, so I've got debt and investment framework. And so long as you're investing and paying down debt, you're always winning. So the framework says, take the interest rate on your debt, multiply it by 10. And that is a percentage of your cash flow you should use to pay down debt. So if the interest rate on your debt is 7% times by 10, 70%, 70% of your cash flow, pay down debt, 30% invest. So you're always winning no matter where the market is, what the interest rate is. And that's a really great framework that people can follow. It's not biased. It's based on logic. And if you follow that over a 5, 10 year period, you're going to do very well. Awesome. And Sam, last question as we wrap this up and get you out of here, because you've popularized this so much, Stealth Wealth, what is it and what are your top two things that we should be thinking about to make sure that we're following it? Yeah, Stealth Wealth is just to try to be more humble and live, just blend in with the masses or actually live below what the masses perceive you to really have. Because the idea is, unfortunately, wealth can create envy, jealousy, and can make you a target. And so you want to just blend in so you can live your life as freely as possible. And that's very consistent with actually the FIRE movement to do what you want and live freely. Because if you're famous and you're very wealthy and people know it, your freedom goes away. And so stealth wealth is also very consistent with buying a frugal car, following the one tenth rule to not tell anybody your home address because they're just going to look it up and see what it's, how much it's valued. You know, to have two cars... If you could, or just have a one car that's a nice car and one's a beater that you drive around in public, or to just have a beater driving around in public, because you don't want to attract that attention. And, you know, it's very interesting nowadays, right? Like, are you trying to make yourself famous for what? What is the end goal? The end goal is to just live the life that you want to live. You know, I just want to spend time with my children as much as possible before they turn 14, because then they're going to have their own friends and do what they want, right? And so... This is a moment that if I can be more off the grid, I think the better. And it's funny because, you know, I write a public blog, but that's been my mantra. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) a public blog talking about all of these topics. But yes, I love it. I love that idea. I'm a big proponent of it. And thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning today. It was a pleasure talking to you about Buy This, Not That, which more people need to read and start bringing into their daily lives. So thank you for joining me today, Sam. All right. Thanks a lot, Clint. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy.